Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've been looking at a chapter where Paul has equipped us, or is equipping us, I should say, with the necessary tools, not only for the good times, but also for the ill. Equipping us to endure affliction and injustices that we will uh, inevitably face in this world. And he does it by talking in detail about the righteous justice of God. It's a righteous justice which on one hand is remunerative, that is to say it rewards and brings relief to those who are, who are deserving of it. And uh, he grants them that in the end. But a big part of it is also that God's justice brings retribution and vengeance against those who do not. Both of these views are entirely necessary if you have any hope of being equipped to be able to withstand the injustices that you face in this world, to be able to make sense of the kind of world that you live in every day. And this topic of vengeance, which is largely the subject of 2 Thessalonians 1, it's probably the most detailed description of it anywhere in, in Scripture, this topic of vengeance has fallen on hard times, unfortunately. As we began to note last week, it has fallen out of favor, certainly in the messaging of the church and, and the preaching from so many pulpits, as As people no longer want to speak about a God of vengeance, a God of wrath, it strikes them as unbecoming or at least unmarketable. They want a God that they believe will draw people and that is not the God of vengeance and the God of retribution. They want to talk about a God of peace and comfort and salvation, but not a God of judgment. In fact, for some people, to even think of God in terms of vengeance and wrath, is utterly repulsive. The whole notion of retribution doesn't comport with their view of the gospel. You even hear people making dichotomies about the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament. Or if they don't talk about the God of the Old Testament, the God, they at least think about the message of the Old Testament... And the message of the New Testament as being incompatible with one another. And so it is an effort to draw people. They just factor out in their minds that message of God in the Old Testament and His vengeance. Because the message of Jesus Christ is one of love and acceptance and grace and kindness. Well... Not the Jesus of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because what Paul has to say to us here is all about the vengeance. But not the vengeance of a God of the Old Testament. It is very clearly the vengeance of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is He who is pictured as returning. Not just dressed in the soft clothes of comfort but dressed in the garb of a wrathful and retributive, if you might say, God who is coming out to pour out His punishment on all those who stand opposed to Him. And this is the way Paul says it, beginning in verse, as we did last week, beginning back in verse 4 for the context, he says, "We, We ourselves boast about you, 
in the churches of God for your steadfast, steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of the testimony, because our testimony to you was believed. Here's a message that in so many ways is inconsistent with what people want to think about Jesus Christ today. It's inconsistent with what they want to preach. But for the Apostle Paul, it was absolutely necessary It was necessary to have a proper view of God's vengeance and God's retribution. Maybe we should say it more clearly. It's necessary to have a proper view of Jesus's vengeance and Jesus's retribution if you're going to have a proper view of life, if you're going to have a proper view of suffering, as well as a proper view of salvation. And his emphasis here is clear. God's judgment, which is coming, is right. It is just. It includes both his reward on one hand and his retribution on the other. In fact, for him to fail to inflict judgment and and retribution would be not right. It would make God unjust. This is the whole argument of Romans chapter 3. If you take your time to work through that, Paul deals with the incompatibility of this whole idea that God would somehow just ignore sin, just overlook it and do nothing about it. That would make God unjust, he says. So much of the world is troubled, troubled at the thought that God wouldn't do this. They're troubled at the thought that God would somehow judge so many people that they consider to be essentially good and, and innocent and just striving to get through life. But Paul understands the righteousness of God to be manifested, to be evidenced whenever he inflicts his retribution on some and his reward on others. And without this, He understands that these Thessalonians, as well as you and I, are ill-equipped to face the injustices of this life. In fact, the church today is in a a debate, I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, on what to do about injustices. And I think one of the main reasons why it is such a struggle for the modern church is because they've lost sight of these very clear truths in the pages of Scripture. Because Paul is telling us that you have to understand, as you're facing affliction, as you're facing injustice, you have to understand that there's a reality that's coming. 
uh, a retribution, which he says is not just some distant reality. It's not some dangling detail to be debated by those who are just interested in talking about theology. It is something that ought to be the framework of how you see your daily experiences right now. And for you to deny it or ignore it is to undercut not only your own Christian life and testimony, it is to weaken your resolve to endure suffering for right reasons. If you lose track of this, you'll lose your motivation to do what is right, to do what honors the Lord, to stand for His name. And so what Paul does is he plunges deep into this topic. And uh, you and I are plunging deep into it because we understand this whole necessity to, to see and to view and to have a proper view of God's coming right justice. Now, as we noted in the last couple of weeks, all of this is really part of a prayer. It can get lost, but it's part of one big long sentence in the, in the original Greek that goes all the way back to verse 3. And Paul where he said he ought to give thanks for them. He had prayed for them to endure trial. He had prayed for them to grow in their faith. And now he's received a report back from Timothy, who had visited them, that that's exactly what's taking place. They were expressing this kind of growth. And so Paul offers this prayer of thanksgiving. But even as he begins to pray, he can hardly help himself. He slides if you will, from that opening prayer of thanksgiving into an explanation and a word of encouragement of the way that God is using their affliction for His glory. And, and he gives us basically three facts to understand that, three facts about the justice of God that you and I need to understand if we ever have any hope of being energized to endure infliction, uh, affliction. He, he gives us First of all, as we saw last week, this fact in verse 5, 5 through 7, that their endurance is actually giving evidence of God's justice. Their endurance is giving evidence right now of God's justice. So what he says, verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that the, what he, the, the steadfastness and the faith that they were showing, he mentioned it in verse 4. That steadfastness and that faith is giving evidence. It is pointing to something. That's what evidence does, right? And it is, it is pointing to or it's giving evidence for the righteous judgment of God, which is really counterintuitive. Because when people suffer injustice, most would conclude that this is evidence that God is unjust, that God would just allow those kinds of things to happen. You hear that all the time. How could God allow evil in the world? Well, Paul's answer is he doesn't. God would never allow evil in the world. He would never allow evil to just take place. He's far from that, Paul is saying. In fact, what he's doing is he's accumulating, he's building his case as all of these evil acts take place day after day after day. Someone walks in a synagogue yesterday and and shoots down 11 people. God takes note of those things. And every one of them are evidence about his righteous judgment of God, about the righteous judgment of God. Every one of them will be accounted for in his 
system of justice. Paul's even saying that your steadfastness and your faith are evidence. They're evidence as you endure these kinds of afflictions with the right heart, the right motive, and the right response. Even those things are evidence when God chooses not to condemn you and not to cast judgment on you, when God chooses to welcome you into his kingdom, even your response, your righteous response to those afflictions are going to stand as evidence when he welcomes you into his kingdom that he is doing the right thing, that his justice is right. Another way to say that is that it's going to give glory to God. That your response, your right response, is going to reflect on what God has done in your heart. And it will be recognized by everyone on the day of judgment. And every one of them will give glory to God. Although it may seem like it's being ignored by the world right now. Although it may seem like... People right now are misinterpreting or misreading however you responded. It won't be misread on that day. It'll be read exactly the way it's supposed to be read. It'll be read as a reflection of God's glory. Like Peter says in 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if for various... If, excuse me. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you're being grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes though when it's tested by fire. That it may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The tested genuineness of your faith. That's what Paul's talking about. A tested, genuine, and therefore meaningful piece of evidence. When he returns, we understand that this suffering is being used by God for his his plan and his glory. And all that glory will be fully manifested as right. It will be fully manifested as just. Even if it's being worked out in the present realities of suffering and affliction. Another way to say this is that God's justice while it may appear somewhat to be hidden right now, while it may appear somewhat to be unrealized by the world right now, they operate right now as if it doesn't exist. They go by as if there's no standard of justice by which they'll be judged. Paul is saying if you have spiritual eyes to see, you cannot ignore the evidence. Spiritual discernment tells you that. I mean, we are, we are all pricked in our conscience. We're grieved when we see the kind of malicious and murderous and slanderous things that take place all around us. We're grieved by those things. And we ask ourselves, how can they get away with that? And the answer is they won't. They won't. Every act will be accounted for. Verse 6, indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. There's going to be a great reversal, a moral reversal. And those currently afflicting will find themselves afflicted. And in verse 7, God considers it just to grant relief to you 
who are afflicted as well. The other part of the equation, Paul actually uses a word for, for a, a bowstring, being kind of taut, if you will, on the bow. He uses a word for loosening that bowstring, for removing it. As if on that day, God's going to remove all of the tension, all the ways in which you're being stretched, all the friction, all the pressure, all the hostility, all of that is going to be removed. And that day will be a day of reward, a day of relief, a massive reversal, and His justice will be put on display. And the evidence will be everything that you are enduring right now. The glory to His name will be everything that you are experiencing right now. Paul wants them to understand that. He wants them to understand that so that they are energized. So that they can endure what they're going through. He wants them to understand God's system of justice. It has rewards and it has retribution. The question, of course, that we inevitably ask is when? I mean, how long, as the psalmist says? How long is this going to take place? Well, that brings us to the second fact of God's justice that Paul wants us to understand. And that is the events that will manifest or the events that will clarify God's justice. And the short answer is, these things will take place until the return of Christ. Or as Paul says there, second half of verse 7, that this justice is going to finally be on display when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being revealed. Revealed obviously refers to something that was previously hidden. And so he, he sort of sets up this contrast, if you will. He understands that there's sort of an invisible nature right now to this, to this uh, justice, this system of justice. He understands all of those things. And he's telling us that there's going to be a revelation. A revelation that begins with Jesus Christ. Who is the ultimate revelation of, of the justice of God. The ultimate revelation of what God's going to do. And, and it's very clear as you read these verses. He's not picturing this as coming from God the Father. He's not picturing this as coming from the sort of um, stuffy old God of the Old Testament. This is from the meek and mild Savior who offered Himself willingly on the cross to be crucified for us. He is the one who is going to return. But His second return, or His second coming, I should say, is not going to be like His first. He first came in obscurity. His birth was, while announced by angels, it was mostly ignored by the world. He spent His life almost unnoticed for 30 years. But his second coming is going to be different. It's going to be a complete unveiling. And whereas there may be some sense right now where you can't fully see God's justice, Paul sets all of that in stark contrast to the coming day. Because at Jesus' revelation, it is going to be very, 
very visible. It's going to be clear, nothing obscure, nothing hidden at all about it. In fact, he pictures it with three vivid descriptions to help us to understand that. First of all, he says it's going to be triggered, if you will, with this coming from heaven. This coming from heaven, which tells us exactly what and who he's talking about. The first coming of Christ was somewhat quiet in a stable, but his second coming is going to be from heaven. This is the way he left earth. You remember after his resurrection, he took his disciples up to the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. And the scripture says he was taken up from there as he was among them. And he, descend, he ascended, I should say, into the clouds. And as they were standing there gazing up into the sky, angels appeared and asked him, why are you standing there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken away from you will come in the same way back to you. So just like he was taken up bodily into the clouds, he's going to descend again. He's going to come in exactly the same way. The same Jesus, meek and mild, comforting and, and, uh, and saving, the same Jesus is going to return in exactly the same way. But when he comes, when he descends from heaven, he's going to do it not as the one coming to show further grace to all those who have rebelled on the earth, but he's coming to show his judgment. And it's going to be incredibly visible. In the skies. It's going to be out for everyone to see. Nothing could be less obscure. Nothing could be more revealing, more visible, and more terrifying. But that visibility is not the only aspect because Paul also mentions that he's not coming alone. He will be revealed with his mighty angels. Matthew 25, 31 describes Jesus as coming with all of his angels. They're coming with him. And you see throughout the pages of scripture, they're always pictured in this final day as accompanying him as instruments, as soldiers to carry out his acts of judgment they will gather they will collect all those on the face of the earth who do not believe they will gather them to be thrown into the fire of judgment Matthew 16 the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father and then He will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, the Son of Man will send his angels And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and will throw them into the fiery furnace. He says it twice in that same place. This is the image that Paul is 
painting for us as well. A vivid and frightening one. You can just imagine, instead of the clear skies, if you will, being darkened by a, by a flock of birds or a, some sort of coming of locusts, cloud of locusts, they're going to be darkened by tens of thousands of angels, or covered at least. Each one of them mighty. That's the word Paul uses. They're mighty, or literally the angels of his might. These are mighty, mighty creatures. One of them, you remember in 2 Kings 19, defeated an entire army of 185,000 soldiers. It's a single angel. Every one of them filling the skies along with Jesus. Again, nothing obscure about this. The image is one of visibility, clarity, transparency. Whatever you consider to be the justice of God right now being somewhat hidden, it's not going to be that way, he's saying. And then thirdly, He says Jesus is coming with a flaming fire, which is a typical language of judgment that you find throughout the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Isaiah 66 is probably the reference here, which says, Behold, the Lord will come in fire, and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire, for uh, for by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. Paul understood that to be a reference to Jesus Christ. He's the one who's coming. There is no no, uh, separation between this message of God in the Old Testament and this message of God in the New Testament. It's the same God. And he's pictured in the Old Testament, he's pictured here as coming with fire as a symbol of judgment. We're, We're not given explicit details of how all of this will be expressed. But again, the point is, is not the details. The point is the visibility, the prominence, if you will, the public nature of this. God's justice will be unavoidable by anyone, by everyone. All of this said in contrast. The evidence of His justice is there In the lives of those who are quietly enduring suffering and affliction, it's there, those who are violating their conscience and going against God's law, it is there, those who are causing affliction, but the ultimate manifestation of His justice will be when the Lord Jesus comes from heaven with His holy angels with flaming fire, bringing His judgment with Him. Paul's focus here is clearly on that retribution, that vengeance. Both sides are pictured, but the emphasis is on those particularly who do not know Christ. And that kind of takes us to the third fact about God's justice he wants us to understand, and that is the end, the end that will finalize God's justice. And you see... Paul's summary statement there in verse 8 as he talks about Jesus inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we begin to get clarity about exactly 
everything Paul's been talking about in terms of vengeance. He's saying that when Jesus returns, he will inflict punishment. He will inflict vengeance, not only on those who are persecuting Christians. He's going to pour out vengeance on everyone who does not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. In other words, this righteous judgment that he's talking about isn't reserved for a select few people, a select few evildoers. It is for all of those who do not know God in a saving way. And Paul describes them here with these two phrases. First of all, just simply those who do not know God. And he's he's not using knowledge here in the sense about facts. He's not saying that you have to know something about God. He's not saying that you have to know the stories about God. He's not referring to people who simply have never heard of God or never heard of those stories. He's talking about people who do not know God in the sense of having a personal relationship with Him. This is similar language to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 when he warned, not everyone who says to me in that day, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father. For on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus isn't using the word know in the sense of having facts about them. He's not saying, I wasn't even aware that you even existed. No, God knows about you. The question is, does he know you? Does he know you in the sense of having a relationship with you? There will be some of you on that day of judgment and you will hear God say, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. Well, Paul turns all of that around, not in terms of God knowing you, but in terms of you knowing God. And he says he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. That includes every single person, every single person, even those of you who are here today, if you've not repented and given your life to Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, you might know a lot about God, but you don't know God the way you would know a friend, the way you would know your mom and dad even, your husband and wife, your children. You don't know God in terms of having a relationship with Him. Because the only way to know God is to belong to Jesus Christ. He's the one who opens the doorway. As He prayed in John 17, This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is what Paul's talking about. He's saying that when Jesus descends from heaven with his mighty angels, with flaming fire, he's coming to inflict vengeance against you if you do not know God. 
And the only way to escape that vengeance is for you to come to know Him, to place your faith in Christ, and then you escape His wrath. You can see that even in the second phrase that Paul uses here because he refers to these people not only as those who do not know God, but also those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they have not responded to the message of the truth, the message of the gospel, the call to repent and believe. They've been given opportunity to hear, at least those that Paul is referring to here, but they've not responded to it. They've not repented and given their life to Christ. And so when Jesus returns, He will return with mighty angels and flaming fire, not to welcome them into heaven, not to welcome you into heaven, but to inflict vengeance. Because you have not responded to the gospel. And there's no notion that when he returns, there's going to be some moment for you to stop and reflect and change your mind and maybe repent and trust God at that point. That's the idea that some people have. They They think of God as so loving and merciful and so much so that even after he returns, he's still going to be pleading with people. He'll still give them opportunities to repent and believe, but that's not going to happen. When Jesus comes, when he arrives, he's coming for the purpose of pouring out his vengeance. In fact, Paul expands on what he's saying here about Jesus' vengeance adding in verse 9 that these people will suffer punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. This isn't some temporary penalty. This is punishment of eternal destruction, eternal punishment. That whole idea is is, uh, regretfully on the, on the decline, if you will, at least among evangelicals, about 30 years ago, the movement started in earnest to define away this whole idea that God punishes people eternally. People form a view of God whereby they can't reconcile the idea of God's mercy and the idea of eternal punishment. And so they propose that in judgment, people, they might experience some temporary pain, but eventually the outcome will be that they simply are annihilated. They simply don't exist anymore. In fact, the view is called annihilationism. The idea that people don't actually suffer for all eternity. They just suffer for a little while and then they're, then they're gone. And these people who propose this view say that the idea of annihilation is actually necessary for the whole idea of judgment being by fire. Because what does fire do? It burns on a source of fuel. And if the people are being thrown into the fire as a source of fuel, like any other fire, eventually it burns up its source and then it goes out. And they add to that, by the way, that the whole idea of eternal punishment would be completely incompatible with the idea of eternal bliss 
and comfort and joy for those of us who are in heaven. It would be impossible, they say, for you and I to really enjoy heaven if we knew that there were souls who were at all times suffering punishment somewhere for all eternity. But none of those None of those arguments stand up either to the scrutiny of Scripture or the scrutiny of reason. Because first of all, the Scripture is very clear about this fire. It is a fire that is everywhere spoken of as eternal fire. Mark 9.41, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It would be better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Or he says in verse 47, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus says, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. Those are unmistakable references to the eternal, never-ending nature of this fire of judgment. And it makes sense if you understand the source of the fire. It's not the body of those people who are cast into it that fuels the fire. What fuels the fire is God And his wrath. He is the source who's always stoking it. Another way to say that is God's judgment is active and dynamic all the way through eternity. He is punishing consciously at every moment those who have rejected him. They're suffering conscious punishment themselves. That's the whole idea behind this phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This isn't an unconscious punishment. This is a conscious punishment. It communicates torment. And all of this is something that emanates directly from God. Even here in 2 Thessalonians, that's probably the idea that Paul has when he says, they will suffer eternal punishment. The punishment of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord. Some some of your versions have the word away, away from, uh, giving this a spatial idea. But literally the text says eternal punishment from the presence of God and from the glory of His might. Paul just uses this preposition from, it it can have the idea of location, but it also can have the idea of source. And so Paul very well could be saying that this eternal punishment is not just away from the presence in the sense of location. Because of course there's no place in all of creation where God's presence doesn't exist. God's everywhere, right? God is even there in the place of torment. But Paul, I think, is actually telling them that this suffering of eternal destruction will be from the source of God's presence 
and from the source of the glory of His might. In fact, this this appears to be a reference back to Isaiah chapter 2, which speaks about God's coming judgment on the earth. And, and the language in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, is almost identical to what Paul uses here. Isaiah 2.19 speaks about the terror of when the Lord comes to judge the earth. It says, when the Lord comes, that, quote, people will enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty When he rises to terrify the earth. Charles Quarles clarifies exactly what this verse is saying. He says, quote, The reason that Isaiah exhorts the sinners to hide in the rocks, away from the presence of the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty, is that the presence and the glory bring destruction. Destruction did not come by separation from God's presence and glory. Separation was looked at as a relief and an escape which sinners sought. Punishment came by encountering the presence and the glory of God. End quote. This is the way you see often in the Old Testament the presence of God. When He comes, He comes And things are devoured in His presence. They're destroyed in His presence. People quake in His presence. It's not as though the sinner will be suffering by being cut off from God. In fact, that's probably what he wants. He probably wants to be as far away from God as he can get. But the idea that they will suffer from the presence of God's wrath and from the presence of His glorious might... Is probably what Paul's getting at here. Even though they are eternally in his presence, they, even though they're, you might even say, relationally separated from him, they will still suffer continually. Because the wrath of God is not just some remote thing that he establishes somewhere in the corner of creation and then leaves it to forget about it. It is eternal wrath whose source is the Lord. Eternal fire whose source is the Lord. He is the eternal source of vengeance. In other words, this is an active, dynamic, ongoing punishment. And none of it is inconsistent with God's character or God's person. It's not inconsistent with His love. It's not inconsistent with His joy. It's not inconsistent with His mercy or His peace. The reason I believe people have such difficulty wrapping their head around this idea is because they begin with the wrong view of sinners and the wrong view of God. First of all, they imagine that these sinners are thrown into hell and immediately they become remorseful and they begin to regret their decision to reject God and so there's genuine sorrow over their guilt and they are just longing for an opportunity to confess and, and be accepted by God. But that's not the case at all. In fact, 
once these people are totally separated from the common grace of God, and particularly from the sanctifying influence of Christians, the full force of their rebellion, their hatred of God, blossoms. So that even as they are punished, they will in turn hate God even more. They will curse God even more. They'll never come to the place where they recognize themselves as deserving of what they receive. And so their punishment will be eternal because their rebellion is eternal. Every passing hour is going to be another opportunity for them to sin against God, to compound their guilt. You say, if you're out there, well, I mean, if God were to throw me into hell, you know, then, then I think I would get the message, I would immediately repent. No, you wouldn't. If that was true, you would repent right now. What the evidence shows is that you're a rebel against God. That for all of the preaching and teaching of the gospel message that you hear over and over again, you still haven't repented, and an eternity of preaching would not change that. In fact, all that's going to happen if you don't know God is that you are going to manifest the fact that you hate Him all the more. And so thousands of years, millions of years, millennia, none of that curbs their rebellion. If anything, it just intensifies it and manifests it all the more. So eternal punishment makes sense for eternal rebels. Eternal punishment makes sense for eternal rebels. And it manifests the fact that God's justice is right. It's right for God to punish rebels. It's right for God to punish people who curse Him and hate Him. He's justified in doing that. And even in eternity, we will recognize the just judgment of God. Well, there's a lot more we could say about that, but we have just a few moments to really look at one more thing that Paul says here about this end, about the the finality of all this, because he not only pictures the justice of God on the side of retribution, but also on the side of remuneration. In verse 10, he says that all this will take place when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. This is also an amazing statement because uh, and we can only briefly comment on it here. Paul's picturing the day that Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints. He's not talking about glorified by his saints. He's talking about being glorified in us. Or you might even say through us. He's being glorified by our transformed lives. It's already a reality. If you know Christ, you've already become a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. That's one of the evidences of the genuineness of your faith. But what he's talking about is when he comes, then our lowly and, and still weak mortal flesh is going to be transformed 
by the glory of His power into new resurrected bodies. And so that that impulse within you that wants to do right and wants to obey God all the time is is going to find its full flourishing. And so when He comes, He is going to be glorified through His saints because they're going to be living out externally the realities of their inner man and showing day by day the evidence that God's justice was exactly what it was supposed to be because all those people that he's redeemed are the very people who are loving the fact that they can serve him. They're loving the fact that there's no more sin and there's no more pain. They're loving the fact that they're no longer beset by temptation. They're loving the fact that in every way now, God is glorified in them. Perfect obedience, perfect worship on that day. And He's come to be glorified in us, through us, that is, but also by us, as Paul says, He's marveled at among all who believe. I want to be among that group. Don't you? I want to be in that group. The ones, when He comes, who are marveling at Christ. I don't want to be among those who are cast out to suffer God's eternal vengeance. I want to be among those who are welcomed by Him, who are glorified by Him, who are transformed by Him. I want to be among those who are gathered to marvel at Him. You can be too if you respond to his call. If you obey the gospel right now, here today, you know the message. The message that you have rebelled against God, that your life reflects a life of sin. But it also, today is a day of salvation. Today is... God's grace to have you here so that you can hear this message, so that you can have another opportunity to respond to the gospel call, so that when He comes, you're not under His wrath, but you're under His mercy. You're under His transforming power. We're going to close this service as we do each week with a song and a prayer, and I invite you to come. If you haven't responded to the gospel, if you want to be among those who are marveling at Christ to His return. If you want to be among them, if you want to respond, come, come to our visitor reception. Come find one of our elders. We'd love to talk with you, to show you from the Scripture exactly how God can forgive your sins and grant you eternal life. Let's stand together and bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this. As difficult as it is to think about eternal punishment We know it is right because you are right. We know it is just because you are just. We know that we too rightly deserve to be among those eternally punished rebels because we had rebellion in our hearts. But it was your mercy that pursued us, that broke us, that drew us back and made us your own. We're so grateful, Lord. And for all eternity, 
we'll be grateful for all eternity. We'll pray with powerful thanksgivings to your name. We'll sing with chorus and song. We'll worship our Savior and our Redeemer. We will marvel at you. And it will be our joy through the ages to sing of your love for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.